0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. First off, I need to acknowledge what's going on around in the world. Yes, we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I haven't released an episode in a month as we're all figuring out what this new reality is like. But I wanted to get back into publishing content, hopefully to give you guys some listening material as we socially distance. And I'm very excited about the guest for this episode, climate legend Christiana Figueres. Christiana came on to talk about her new book, The Future We Choose, and her role as the chief architect behind the Paris Climate Accords. You've heard me talk about the Accords as being one of the greatest achievements in human history. Well, we get to hear from someone at the center of making all that happen. Christiani also talks about dealing with climate change in the age of coronavirus and what happens if we have a new president in November. What does that mean about the United States getting back into the accords? We also talk about the legacy of her father, Jose Figueres Fidel, the former president of Costa Rica and who famously abolished the national military. Cristiani has some amazing stories as she reports in from Costa Rica. Okay, upcoming episodes. Next up, I have Dr. Linda Shy from Cornell University coming on to talk about adaptation and equity and urban planning. You've heard me talk about going to Massachusetts and North Carolina to record a couple of episodes. Well, that has changed. I'm still going to tell those stories, but I'm talking with those folks about the best way forward, but still be on the lookout for those episodes. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. Many of you are probably wondering what this is all about. I've talked to some of you. I've been able to connect with some of my listeners around this topic. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows on Simpatico TV. So Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems, policies, and innovations. I will be anchoring appropriately the Climate Adaptation Channel, a whole channel dedicated to adaptation, where I'll be interviewing academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, and climate adaptation professionals just like yourself. I've already done nearly 20 pilots with many more in the pipeline. I'm chatting with people from all over the world around every adaptation topic imaginable. Our television shows will be live streams, meaning you can interact directly with me, my guests, and other community members in the chat room during the interviews. Okay, so Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters interested in joining a community of beers. Also, if you're interested in just checking it out and potentially participating in a particular pilot episode in the chat room, reach out, let me know, and we'll give you some sign-in information also like to invite adapters to join me on as a guest in these pilot episodes. We are reaching out to experts, but we also have an opportunity for you to reach out to us. I've already done some interviews with some of my listeners, which is really fun for me. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, product, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we're ready for your debut on Simpatico. Videos from all the episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube or put them up there on LinkedIn. And if you are looking for opportunities for remote working, Sympatico is definitely something you should look into. Okay, if you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Obviously, I won't be traveling anytime soon, but hopefully when this is all over, we can try to go back to some semblance of normalcy and speaking will be part of that. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences and adaptation. And if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, I'm doing some podcast consulting. You can contact me via the website, americadaps.org. And stick around until the end of this episode and hear about a new educational app I'm involved in called Lyceum. Okay, let's join Christiana Figuettis. I know you're going to love this conversation. Hey, Adapters, today I have a truly exciting episode. I'm talking with Christiana Figuettis. Christiani was the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and is a founding partner of Global Optimism, a purpose driven enterprise focused on social and environmental change. Christiani also just published a book we're going to talk about, The Future We Choose. Christiane, I keep mispronouncing your name. I apologize. This is a huge honor and I'm thrilled to be hosting you. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Doug. Thank you. And first of all, congratulations that you have properly pronounced my name with a Spanish accent that clearly denotes that you spent time in a Spanish-speaking country, perhaps even Costa Rica. And also, congratulations, you know, the title that I used to have of Alba Executive Secretary of the Climate Convention, is... It's quite a mouthful, uh, and so congratulations for being able to put that one across as well.
0: Well, just you know, to be perfectly honest, I was looking at the list of things that you do, and you're still involved, and I'm like, okay, how do I introduce you? There's just so much here. and
1: It's also a challenge to organize my day, as you could imagine.
0: I imagine. <laughs> I just want to jump into this, and we are recording this in, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. These are crazy times, and just first off, where are you right now?
1: So I am in a little town called Puerto Jiménez, which is on the Osa Peninsula, which is the southern tip of Costa Rica, just before you get to the Panamanian border. I'm in this little town called Puerto Jiménez. Used to be strangely enough it used to be a gold mining town. So odd to even think about that. We used to mine gold in the in the river, but now Puerto Jiménez is very much like there are many other places in Costa Rica, as an ecotourism center, and I am here just 100 meters from an absolutely gorgeous beach, calm, so lined, and I go out at five in the morning and see the Sunrise, and I have seen very few human beings, but many, many red macaws. What can I
0: say? Boy, I am jealous. I'm visualizing it right now. In
1: mating season, the red macaws are in mating season, so they make a racket.
0: So, how's the population doing down there? Is it healthy, the macaw population?
1: The macaw population is doing very, I didn't know which
0: population. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's the
1: macaw in. population is doing quite well here in the Peninsula.
0: That's very encouraging.
1: And if you've never seen a red macaw, Doug, for those who have never seen a red macaw, please do go to Miss Google and, you know, type in red macaw image and you will be absolutely blown away.
0: They are stunning birds. Okay, so you are in a beautiful spot during all this craziness. I want to talk about some of the work that you've done. I also want to talk a bit about Costa Rica further down the line, but how exactly is what's going on impacting your work? Is it you're hunkering down there, but what are you doing right now and how is this impacting you?
1: Well, obviously all of us are hugely impacted, right? The, the first impact is just stopping all kinds of transport, whether it's land or, or air. I have just released the book that you mentioned, and I was supposed to be on a book tour And that, of course, was cut short. I did the book tour in New York and Washington, then in London, then Australia. And then I was supposed to do several countries in Europe and the West Coast of the United States. And that's all been put on hold. And obviously now working from here with colleagues that are all strewn around the world means that we have to be very mindful of each other's ability to organize timing and conference calls and so, yeah, so, you know, all of us are uh, living the constraints of transport. But, but I, I have to say, Doug, I am so grateful and so moved by what has emerged because of that constraint. And I, I've always thought that constraints bring opportunities. I, I always think that a carbon constraint brings many opportunities. But right now, we have a mobility constraint, and what that has done is it has moved us as humans. It has moved us into a space of, you know, and, and we use the term endless abundance in our book, in a space of endless abundance of ways in which we are communicating with each other, in which we're showing solidarity and appreciation for each other that I had never experienced before. Here in my own little Costa Rica, right, we, we have some patients from COVID-19 in one particular hospital, and it has strained the hospital. Well, you have no idea how many people come out at night and just stand in front of the hospital and applaud into onto the building wow. um, because they are expressing their appreciation for all of the health workers who are just working so, so hard to keep that hospital going and to contain the uh, the spread of the virus and keep those people alive and bring them back into health. It's just, it's just beautiful to see. And how many beautiful expressions of uh, of solidarity, you know, young people offering to go shopping for the older people who they had never even met, well, despite the fact that they are neighbors uh, and bring the groceries to their door and make sure that everything is antiseptic. I mean, just on and on, how many free courses are now online of everything that you could possibly want from, you know, physical movement, yoga, tango, um, Zumba, meditation mm. to all kinds of Skills that people may want. I mean, it is just beautiful, done. It really is. Um, and yes, it's difficult to be physically isolated, but that doesn't mean that we're in human isolation. And the human connection that is just blossoming everywhere is wonderful to behold.
0: I hope you consider the podcast and I think that's probably what some of your promotion people are thinking that the podcasts are, it's taking place of your book tour. You know, if you can't go there in person, it's not the same, but here's a chance to talk to a lot of people get the word out on what you're doing no
1: definitely definitely and you know we have our own podcast and thank you for inviting me on on this one we have our own podcast called outrage and optimism so we are discussing interesting things over there also the nexus between climate and coronavirus but more than anything we are trying to focus on how are we as humans going to come out of this crisis better prepared to deal with all other crises that we still have ahead of us and you know there as long as we as long as we engage quite intentionally and consciously in strengthening those skills that we are exhibiting now we're going to be in a much better place
0: on that note i want to talk about the paris climate accords and you were the architect behind that i can't stress enough how important your role was and i want to thank you and but what's happening now that you know 2015 that was this momentous occasion now that we have coronavirus and now that we've had five years passing what what's the status of that how are countries doing
1: well this the status of that is quite different uh today than it was a month ago yeah <laughs> because the, the fact that we are have cut down transportation to the bare minimum and only to the very, very essential transport means that we're having way fewer emissions from transport. The fact and, and we've cut down certainly land transport, uh, local transport, international transport, international air transport, everything is is cut down, as well as many non-essential industrial centers have been closed down. So they're not emitting. And so both from a global perspective of uh, emissions that are going up into the air, they are well down, certainly in China. I think that's the, the record that we have seen. China's emissions are way down, but also local pollution, right? We have seen reports that uh, the canals in Venice are clearing up, that the air is cleaning up in most cities, that all tons of uh, animals are actually now coming closer and closer to the urban centers. So in terms of local environment, that is also going through a period of healing. So both the global and the local is going through a period of healing. Now, The concern about that, while we can be grateful for that, we also have to understand that that is not the way that we would want to regenerate nature because it is coming at a very high cost. It is coming at a cost of human lives. It is coming at a cost of human health. It is coming at a cost of economic recession, probably, which is going to cause a huge amount of economic pain especially on those who are most vulnerable. Yes, there is evidence that from an environment point of view, we're doing better with coronavirus than without, but this is not the way that we would want to go. And I think the important thing here is to figure out very quickly, so what of the behaviors that we've been able to change practically overnight, what of those behaviors can we actually maintain that are going to help us keep a better quality of the environment, both local and global, but also a better quality of life for ourselves. So there's a huge, you know, this is a treasure trove of learning right now um, to figure out what can we learn from here, what can we keep, what do we return to where it was, and how do we combine the two.
0: Well, you must appreciate. It. And this is still just unfolding so fast. We don't even know what two weeks will bring. But you're starting to see some of those stories in the climate movement of like, well, if we can reduce carbon emissions in response to the coronavirus, there's these opportunities in, in the broader climate movement. And just sort of what you were talking to is that we're going to establish these narratives of I worry that, like as you said, that if we try to make a point that we can reduce our emissions and we tie it back to coronavirus, people are going to have such a negative reaction. Well, we don't want to do it that way. That was in response to no, that pandemic, right? But yeah, I mean, don't yeah, you right. sense these narratives or people are trying to figure out how exactly they want to, I'd hate to use the word exploit, but how is the climate movement really going to learn lessons from the coronavirus? And I still think it's up in the air. It could backfire.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're only just starting to explore both the commonalities and the differences, and there are quite a few commonalities and probably a longer list of differences between the two. So, you know, I would say that's in its incipient stage, but it does behoove all of us to do that, right? To figure out what what is in common here and what is different. And in particular, in view of all of that, then what do we want to do differently once we emerge from the uh, virus emergency? Because there is a way in which we could emerge from virus emergency and actually just go into incredible increase of emissions if, for example, the recovery packages that are being considered by governments are put into industries of high carbon intensity, then we will be increasing our emissions and we will condemn ourselves to an increase of emissions way beyond 2030, which is by when we have to be at half the emissions. If, however, those recovery packages and those stimulus packages are done both in terms of recuperating economic activity, but also Um, making sure that this is the point at which the inflection point at which we recuperate not just economic activity, but we actually unleash green economic activity, then actually we have a head start. Then we have accelerated the cleaning up of the emissions around the world, which is what we should be doing with or without the virus.
0: Let's let's try to go back a month or two months ago and when this wasn't just dominating everything and and how and I don't even know, I mean, what's been your role since the Paris Accords were signed is how the countries are trying to meet the these voluntary commitments that they've made. Is it sort of is the UN following on a country by country basis? How's it going? Are some countries really all in? And what what's going on in that respect?
1: Well in two thousand and fifteen, almost all countries of the world just a few that were in at war did not come forward, but almost all countries of the world came forward with something that we call their nationally determined contribution, which is every country went home and did a broad consultation with all their sectors to figure out how could they contribute to the global need, which is reduction of emissions, by focusing on their own interests and targets, their own sustainable development vision, where they wanted to be over the next 10 to 20 years. Based on that, on their national needs and their national vision, then they came forward and they registered under the Paris Agreement what we call the nationally determined contributions, which is each country's national and individual contribution to the global need. But we also knew that once all of those came forward, that that would not be enough to do what science was telling us we needed to do, which was to be at net zero by 2050. That was already very evident. So built into the Paris Agreement is a five-year cycle of revision of uh, what has been done over the previous five years and then Again, in the face of improved technology, shifting capital, and improving policies, each country should come forward with a new national contribution. And so that occurs on a five year basis. And 2015, Plus five is 2020 in Costa Rica, as well as in Arizona. And so therefore, this year is the year at which in Glasgow that is uh, uh, currently scheduled to host the conference of the parties of of the countries that are part of the climate convention. All countries should come forward uh, with their new revision, their updated um, contribution. And so that's where we were. When uh, the coronavirus hit, we were already over 100, I think I've, I've lost count now, but I think it was about 111 countries that were ready and had already informed that they were preparing their new contribution and they would be you know, presenting that at the end of this year. So that's where we were when this coronavirus hit. Now, of course, everything needs to be recalibrated.
0: The United States, famously, uh, I don't think we've technically pulled out. I think that might be November, but it was really just disastrous news and an unthoughtful moment. What does that mean for the rest of the the, the agreement? Countries, I guess, can pull out, but the U.S. is obviously one of the, I think, two biggest polluters. I guess your work and how is the, the whole community there? How do you respond to that when the U.S. is officially pulling out?
1: The U.S. will officially pull out the day after the U.S. elections. You know, sadly, Trump announced several years ago that he was pulling out without having read the Paris Agreement, which if he had read it uh, or if his advisors had read it, would have been pretty clear that that's not something that you can do uh, overnight. There have to be certain periods respected. So the first day in which the U.S. can actually pull out is the day after the election. And we fully expect them to do so independently of whatever the uh, results of the election are. Now, no one should be surprised. Uh, I hope we don't have any journalists coming up, you know, and all of a sudden say, like, oh, my God, the U.S. pulled out. I mean, we have been we have known that they were going to do that on that day. We can probably even predict the time <laughs> and we'll do it um, for three years now. So, you know, there's no need for um, for crisis or Pretending that this is breaking news, so the United States will pull out. Fine. The rest of the countries, uh, most of them, uh, assuming, by the way, assuming you know that that things return to more or less normal, and we don't know that, but the rest of the countries would register their new commitments. Uh, again, unknown what's going to happen now with the virus. But the, the interesting thing, absent the virus, the interesting thing. Is that the United States economy has continued to decarbonize, with or without the federal government, because of a a couple of reasons. A, because most of the measures that are implemented uh, that have an emission reduction impact are actually measures that are state-driven or some of them even city-driven, not federal. And There are the largest states and the largest cities continue to decarbonize because they understand that's the way to build a better city or a more robust economy for the state. And so they have just continued along that path. They're also getting ready for a decarbonized economy globally, and they totally understand that if they want to be competitive, and this is the reason why China is decarbonizing, if they want to be competitive in a decarbonized economy, they better have decarbonized products and services because nobody wants to buy, increasingly, no one wants to buy high-carbon assets and um, goods and, and services. 60-something, I think 65% of the, glo- of the U.S. economy continues to decarbonize. And it's actually quite possible that the United States will, despite what uh, comes out of the federal government, Will actually um, comply with what it said it was going to do five years ago. And, and furthermore, furthermore, Doug, um, let me remind us all that the long, 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 long list of countries that have decided that they're going to pull out of the Paris agreements remains a whopping one. Mm. There's no other country that you know has followed that dubious example.
0: So here, here's a scenario, and this is uh, those who want the U.S. to get back in. Let's say it's Joe Biden and he wins the election. And the day that Trump is still president, because, you know, it takes two months before you get rid of the president. Biden announces even before he has officially become president that he's going to jump back into the, the Paris Accord. Can we literally do that? And would you welcome us with open arms? Or is it just is there a long process again to kind of get back into things? How does that work?
1: No, no, no. It's a very quick process. Trump uh, will withdraw the United States through executive decree, and then he sends a letter to, to the United Nations headquarters in New York, and then it's done. And at the moment in which there is a new president with uh, a different opinion about the future of the United States, he does exactly, or she does exactly the same thing as a presidential decree uh, or executive order, and, um, and a letter to the United Nations. So, no, that, that can be done within 24 hours. It's not complicated. And, and there is a sizable part of the economy of the United States, as I said before, that is actually preparing for that moment and preparing for the dovetailing of the United States back into global efforts.
0: Oh, let us hope that's what happens this course of events. And uh, as you were saying, worst case scenario, if let's Trump gets another he gets elected again, as you were saying, so many things are sort of set in motion with private companies and other things that it's just we're going to see a decarbonization. It's just it would be nice if we had strong U.S. leadership. We'll see.
1: Yeah. And and obviously, if there's alignment all the way up and down, right, all the way from federal to state to city to corporate policy and financial incentives, then that full alignment is what allows you to be the most effective. In the absence of that alignment, uh, it doesn't mean that the whole thing is paralyzed. It just means that you're not
0: optimizing the system. Okay, so I want to pivot and talk about your book, it, The Future We Choose, and your co-author on this book is Tom Rivet Karnak, and hopefully I get that right. And so what's the book about? What, what What were you hoping to accomplish by writing this book?
1: The book is actually a pretty simple book because we recognize that our climate change is a um, complex subject and that most people feel overwhelmed both by the complexity of the topic, the science and the measures that need to be taken, but also overwhelmed about what can I do as an individual? So we try to puncture both of those um, myths. And first of all, it's a very readable book. It's a book that you can read rather than study. It's not meant to be a textbook, you know, a university textbook. It really is a very readable book. You can read it in about two and a half hours. Um, And it gives you The basics in a very, very clear way, the basics of climate science, where are we and and how did we get here? And then it does something um, that is we we think is quite interesting. It actually invites the reader in an experiential way to step into two different worlds that are defined by, by what we do over the next 10 years. So if over the next 10 years we are able to reduce emissions to one half of where they are today, Then we can step into a world, we open the door to a world that is demonstrably better world than even the world that we're living in today. It's a world that has clean air. It's a world that has been regenerated. The oceans are regenerated. The forests are regenerated. We have cities that are green, where there's green Growing everywhere, we have flowers, vegetables growing everywhere. We have cities that have fewer cars and hence less air pollution, much more personal individual mobility. It's just a much more enjoyable world. And so we walk the reader through that, through that experience of what that world will be like. And then we, we compare that to the world that we don't want, you know, the world that is of increasing pollution and increase it. And it leads to conflict because we will be fighting over with increasing heat. We will be fighting over food, land and water. And that's going to mean forced migration because people will have to leave their land because, in order to survive. And that forced migration, which will, uh, where you know, against which the migration that we've seen in the past five years just pales in comparison to the global migration that we could see under those conditions, and that would lead to obviously to conflict and and political upheaval like we have never experienced before. So it's a it's a pretty clear choice. Which world would you like to live in? And you know, the world that we describe is not the world in the year, I don't know, 3,000. No, it's the year 2050. So most of us will be alive and certainly all young people will be actually at their prime of life. And so it's it's very, very quick. This will happen very quickly. We tend to think that these global issues take forever. They don't. As we have learned from coronavirus, things can happen very quickly. And this will also happen very quickly. So it's a choice. What we're saying with this is It's a choice. Wake up. Because we have to choose over the next 10 years. We're choosing between those two worlds. And then we go through how do we turn up here? What are the mindsets that we can cultivate in order to make the right choice? And of course, then very concretely, the actions that we can all contribute but from an individual point of view, I mean, yes, governments have to do their thing. Yes, corporations also.
0: But um, that doesn't exempt the individual. I really love that structure of the two, you know, the two choices and such. And But as you know, there's a lot of research going on, the mindset of people around climate change. Why do people behave in certain ways? And I think that when you're given a choice, you're going to choose one or the other. And so even though it seems like this is a better world, it's a cleaner world, the other world, that's familiar to them. That's they don't want to change anything. And I think that's what we're kind of encountering. And I think what we're learning from the coronavirus, too, in some ways, we've seen such radical behavior change is because we're almost not given a choice. So even though it's a choice to sort of socially distance, in some ways, it's almost structured like this is a life or death. It's almost there's no choice. And I just wonder if that's what's going to take with climate change. And I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where you need to stay indoors. But I, I guess that's what I, I, I struggle with is the notion of like, are people going to make the right choice, even if it seems so obvious? And there's just the psychology there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reason why the choice to stay indoors has been obeyed or, you know, the regulation or the choice, whichever way it goes, has actually been followed so, um, so broadly is because we perceive of the virus as being an imminent threat. And I think that's the challenge with climate, right? The threat is much greater, much, much, much greater. The number of deaths that we will have with the virus are nothing compared to the number of deaths that we will have with unabated climate change. And the the, level of generalized suffering and malnourishment and destruction of infrastructure is just beyond anything that we are experiencing now with the virus. But the threat is not as imminent. That's the trick, right? We, we, what we have learned here over the past few weeks is that if the threat is perceived to be imminent, which this one is, then, then we humans are willing and able to make behavior changes overnight, very quickly, with with huge sacrifice, right? Because uh, this being within four walls is not easy for humans who are innately social. So, yes, we have um, moved to very, very different behavior very quickly because of the immediacy of the threat. And that is not so with climate change. That You know, the, the 10 years that we have there to make this choice is, to put it mildly, is 10 years longer than uh, the few days that we had here to make those changes. So, yes, I agree with you. There's the challenge.
0: I think just to me, the like two of the primary reactions to all this is like there's the fearful reaction. But then, as you mentioned earlier, there's this great sense of responsibility that we got to do something together here. And, you know, you talked about people volunteering to do things and this even social distancing. There's a sense of responsibility, even though I might not get it. I don't want to give it to someone else. And I hope we in the climate movement that will spend years kind of researching what really provoked and what encouraged that not the fear side, but the, the sense of responsibility for this greater good. Uh, hopefully that'll be an actual concrete lesson that we learn from this.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Hopefully. And I just want to say what, regarding the book, and I, I get books, climate books in all the time. And to be honest, I think when I, you know, when you read these books, especially with you're in that space, there's this sort of diminishing returns on what you get, but I just want to, I want to, I think your book was fantastic. I really enjoyed reading it. And what occurred to me when I was reading it too, is that I think, you know, you read these things, but what it did for me is that, you know, there's sort of a mentality that people in the climate space get and you kind of get discouraged. And I thought it did a nice reboot of thinking about this issue. So I I just want to encourage my listeners. It's Mm. if you're in the space it just it was just sort of a new mindset around it. And yeah, I, I think you've done a really great job. It's not a long book. Like you said, it's a book that you can read pretty quickly. But if you're looking for a picker upper, especially if you're in the climate space, I thought you, you guys have done a fantastic job. Just, you
1: know. Oh, great. Thanks, Doug. Thanks.
0: Yeah. And I just don't do a lot of reading as much as I should on these things. But I'm like, think, wait a sec. I didn't think about it that way. And I, you know, if you're in here, this space, you just keep reading articles and books. And it just seems like, did I learn anything really new? And yeah, a reboot of the mind is, I think, really necessary for a lot of us in this space. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, well, wonderful. I'm glad that's the way it arrived, because that's the way it was intended.
0: Are, are there any final points to the, the book that you would like to bring up? It, it's it takes you through what you describe, but at the same time, there's a whole section on like what actions that you can take in the short term in the midterm to the term. And I thought that yeah. was very clever too.
1: And honestly, it's not that difficult, you know, to do this. We We always say that we tend to overestimate what we can do in a week or a month or even a year. And we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. So 10 years is more than enough, totally more than enough To be able to be at one half our current emissions by then, because the fact, you know, certainly at the individual level, we will be replacing many of the high-emitting things in our life. We will definitely improve our transport habits if. If not before, certainly now after the virus, we will improve that. We will be replacing, uh, you know, all the gadgets that we have at home, the boiler and the whatever if we have and uh, hopefully windows. So, you know, all of those high emitting pieces that we have, we will replace them. And so we have the opportunity to uh, replace them with something that is just so much more carbon efficient. So honestly, it's not difficult. This is more a mindset shift, frankly, than it is a burden. It's a mindset shift because we have to understand that we are moving toward a decarbonized world, and and that is something that we have to normalize. We have to normalize plant-based protein. We have to normalize shared transportation. We have to normalize clean electricity. All of those things should not be You know, novel experiences should no longer be innovation, it should just be what we do normally. And we're moving toward that. We just need to
0: accelerate it. I'm not sure if you un- understand like my podcast, most of the time I focused on adaptation and how adaptation. Right. So it's how, and that's who I talk to. I talk to scientists, journalists, policymakers. I'm actually going to be talking to Judge Alice Hill after I talk with you today. And I'm not sure you've crossed paths with her. She was, and she just wrote a book too. These are the sort of people I mainly talk to. And I'm just curious, your thoughts and your own involvement with the Paris Accords. It seems like adaptation for the longest time was forgotten stepchild. But I think that in Paris, there was the first real attempt to sort of elevate the issue that we're not going to obviously ignore the carbon mitigation side, but adaptation really is kind of coming to its own. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that? And how did you see that kind of unfold?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always, you know, thought of adaptation as being the Cinderella uh, piece of the convention because the convention itself, even before the Paris Agreement, is built on both adaptation and mitigation, obviously. But we collectively as a community did not give as much attention, as you say, to adaptation as we did to mitigation. We gravitated toward mitigation first, I think, Doug, because We were more able to develop business models that made adaptation easier to understand and certainly more financeable. And adaptation is, I think, more difficult, A, because it tends to be more localized than global. You can put basically, you know, wind turbines wherever in the world there's a decent wind regime. And you know, many of the other mitigation measures are pretty similar to that in that characteristic but adaptation is very very site specific and it really depends on what the population is what the natural conditions are what the what, what what the current erosion of natural conditions are so the specificity of adaptation i think first is a complexity secondly that specificity means that there is a much much broader universe of adaptation measures that can and should be taken than the mitigation ones. And thirdly, adaptation was a Cinderella because we didn't give much thought to what are the business models that are going to allow us to deploy adaptation measures at scale. And so for all of those difficulties, I always thought of adaptation as being uh, the Cinderella, which is why we paid so much attention to it as we were designing the Paris Agreement to ensure that we weren't again in the Paris Agreement repeating that problem, that we weren't again putting mitigation above adaptation. And honestly, I think the one compelling argument that finally landed that was the argument that we kept on using by saying, look, let's be honest here. If we do not do mitigation as quickly as we have to, Adaptation is just going to escalate enormously. And in fact, it is already escalating. The need for adaptation is escalating immensely already right in front of us. And furthermore, this is so unjust because it is the developing countries that are suffering the most acute need for adaptation. And they're the ones that A, have caused the problem less and B, have the least capacity to deal with their adaptation and and see they're the ones that are actually taking it out of their own budget. And so all of those, all of those arguments I think finally, finally began to land. And yeah, I I do feel that are they being paid equal attention? No, I don't think so. I don't think we're paying equal attention yet, but I think it was brought out of the Cinderella role and put almost (laughs) at equal level with mitigation. I think we still have a lot to work on.
0: Well, here's some anecdotal feedback to you. I've been in the adaptation space for like 15 years and with the podcast about three and a half years. And just hearing from my listeners that they really like thinking about adaptation just because especially so much is happening on the ground now, whereas on the mitigation side, it's a little bit more esoteric and us in the adaptation space we have this sort of naive hope that you can achieve true mitigation through adaptation once we really start adapting to climate change people are going to connect the dots and say wait a sec we can't we've got to mitigate or it's we're not going to be able to adapt and you start seeing a little bit of that but just for you i'm not sure how much you you connect with adaptation implementers out there but they're just doing stuff on the ground and my listeners just love hearing that kind of practical work around climate change that's happening now
1: well, and it's so much more creative, right? That's what I mean about the localization of it. It's so much more creative, so much more innovation because it is site-specific and condition-specific. That, I think, is what makes it very exciting and inspirational.
0: Yes, I'm very encouraged by it. I couldn't have this conversation without bringing up Costa Rica. And I, just a little bit of background. I, I'd mentioned to you earlier, but I, I lived in Costa Rica for about a year and a half back in the 90s. I did my graduate studies in Costa Rica. I just have this soft spot in my heart for Costa Rica. But I bring that up is that your own background, you have quite a family background when it comes to Costa Rican politics. And first off, your father was one of the, the early presidents of Costa Rica.
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by early, because we've been independent since 1821, as you know. And so we've had presidents ever since then, because we've been a very stable democracy. But yeah, my father is considered, let's say, the the father of modern
0: Costa right. Rica.
1: He was president
0: three times Yeah, over the past seven years. Didn't phrase that quite right, just modern Costa Rica. And when I lived there, I was there with my wife, and we lived in San Jose. And whenever we heard about your father and he abolished the military, we just as Americans were just dumbfounded that such an act occurred. And so I'm not sure how often that's brought up to you, but just truly a profound act of goodness there and just an amazing thing. Well,
1: he was um, he was an incredible visionary. He he was a farmer in his youth, and, uh, but he was very studious and a staunch protector of democracy as a construct and was very proud that Costa Rica had been such a long stable democracy. And in the 40s, when the government that was in power disrespected uh, the results of democratic elections two times in a row, he decided that he would lead a revolution to rescue democracy. And so there are many tales about that. But eventually he led, he was a revolutionary, and uh, he led that revolution that was successful in overcoming the, the the government army. And what is fascinating to me is that he actually sent two armies home. Hmm. The first army that he sent home was his own revolutionary army. He could have kept his army, right? They all absolutely, they were so loyal to him, and he could perfectly have kept his military as his own personal paramilitary. He did not do that. As soon as as they had overcome and taken the uh, control of the the, uh, country, the first thing he did was he asked every single one from his own military uh, ranks to turn in their arms and go back to their plowshares because they were all farmers. And then He outlawed the national army and asked for all of those arms back. So he actually abolished two armies, which is amazing. And not only did he do that, then he decided that the budget that uh, had been devoted to the military army, not to his revolutionary, but to the national military army, would actually be divided into Ministry of Education. Hence, Costa Ricans are the most highly educated people in the whole continent, including the United States. And another part went into national parks and protection of our biodiversity. Hence, we have a pretty impressive 5% of all of the biodiversity of the world is on Costa Rican territory. And yes, we are an eco-tourist uh, spot because of that. So quite a guy, huh?
0: <laughs> I get chills hearing that. And I got chills when I read it when I lived in Costa Rica. I was just amazed. And it, I was my, doing my background on you. I saw that when I lived in Costa Rica, your older brother was actually president of Costa Rica. This was like 95, 96. Does that sound right? Yeah,
1: that's that's correct. He was president after my father passed. My father um, passed on in 1990. And then four years later, my brother also became president. So my father, um, n- never knew that, or at least he never told us that he knew it. He probably saw it from above.
0: Well, and then it occurred to me okay, that's quite some big shoes to fill. You got an older brother, you got a father, president of Costa Rica, but then you come along and you're the architect of the most important piece of legislation or just agreement in human history. So I think you did the old man proud. Yeah. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, both of them, my father and my brother chose to work at national level, which I think is probably even more complicated than global level. And I chose to to work at the global level. But yeah, I, I think it's a family that is devoted to public service in, in many different ways. And, and here we
0: are. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up some of the Costa Rica stuff. I very looking back fondly, I was a school teacher at Calejo Metodista in San Jose. And so I just know the area well. So it's been a treat just catching up with you. And
1: well, thanks very much. So when are you coming back to Costa Rica? You
0: know, I, Well, I guess another time really soon. You know, I took my son down there about six, seven years ago, and I want to take him back. And it's usually between Panama or Costa Rica that we kind of choose. I lived in Panama when I was a kid. My dad was military. And so I've been to both plenty of times. So I yeah, de- definitely would like to look you up if I get down to Costa Rica and you're based oh, there.
1: Both are gorgeous countries, I have to say. And I'm here right in the middle of between the two because I'm almost on the border with Panama. So There you go. If you have to choose between the two, just come to the border.
0: (laughs) Excellent. And last question here, I ask all my guests, if you could recommend anyone to come on the podcast, who would you recommend?
1: To come on the podcast. Hmm. You know, how many women do you have on your podcast usually?
0: I'm actually, I think, quite good in that respect. So we're looking at 50-50. I've had hundreds and hundreds of people I've interviewed. So it's it's pretty good. But I'm always looking for more interesting kind of diverse voices. So, yes, if you have a recommendation.
1: Huh. Okay. Well, I'm going to recommend Osprey, who is a fantastic um, female leader of many different of of uh, women who are on the um, on the front lines of climate and who are doing some mitigation, but mostly they are doing um, adaptation. But on the front lines, okay, awesome. very very brave, very brave. And so Osprey Oriole Lake is her name, and I can send you her email.
0: Oh, excellent. Excellent recommendation. Okay, I'm gonna stick one last little question in. Could you tell my listeners what pura vida really means?
1: <laughs> pura vida directly translated means pure life, but what it is an expression that we in Costa Rica use to mean everything is fine, everything is good, we are positive, we walk around with a smile on our face. Yeah, and let's look at the good part of life
0: excellent christiana thank you so much again it's been such an honor talking with you and thank you for all that you've done and with the paris accords it's just truly a momentous thing that you've been involved in but thanks again for coming on the podcast
1: all right thanks very much bye
0: okay adapters that is a wrap what a fantastic conversation thanks to christiana for coming on and congrats on the new book Vita indeed. I'm encouraged that other countries are taking the climate accord seriously, and I'm hopeful that when the U.S. regains its sanity, we'll be back on board and actually leading on this issue. I know, a big ask. I'm also encouraged by Christiani's advice on dealing with climate change in the age of coronavirus. Out of this nightmare, hopefully there will be some lessons learned on how to engage the public on taking these issues more seriously, meaning climate change. Definitely check out Christiani's book and follow her on social media where she's sharing more of her thoughts. Also, don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes. Also, I mentioned this earlier. I want to mention a new podcast app I'm collaborating with. Lyceum is an audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. They seek to create a new culture of learning for the audio age by providing access to the best educational shows, discussion tools to spark great conversations, and easy ways to su- support the shows you love. Basically, it's an app that has curated educational podcasts. And America Adapt is one of the first that they reached out to when they have launched the app. There is an entire climate podcast series available along with other subjects like history, science. Yes, you name it. It's on there. Poetry, many different types of educational podcasts. So check out the app in the link in my show notes. It gives you more functionality to take notes when you're listening to podcasts than probably your regular podcasting app does. So definitely check it out. All right. Don't forget to Donate America Dapps is a charitable organization. We count on your support. Thanks to all those who have become recurring donors. And don't forget to check out the podcast in the classroom initiative we're doing. I will have an update on this very soon. I've had many professors using America Dapps in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been de- developed for 10 of my podcasts. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadaps.org. Yes, it's a personal mission to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to f- Join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group, especially in these crazy times. It's a chance to sort of let your hair down. I know you're out there, we're all socially distancing and most of us cooped up in our homes. So this group is private, but search for America Adapts and ask to join and I will approve you right away. Lots of insider conversations going on there, talking about the coronavirus, but talking about adaptation and please join that group. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. You know, you're there, you're sitting at your computer, you're listening to this podcast, send me an email, americaadapts at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. It's led to some collaborations, partnerships, or just let me know, particularly episodes you've enjoyed. So it's something that helps me weigh in on how I can do my job better. So here you go. This is one of the things you can do is reach out, send me an email or share the podcast on your social media. That's always good when you're creating some word of mouth around it. So, all right, check out the website at americadaps.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. And don't forget to socially distance. Stay safe and sane.